Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, August 21st, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Huaytran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So a lot of people were entertained by our episode yesterday where the news was just breaking as we were recording. Uh, there have been developments in the, the Spider-Man thing. You can go to SlashFilm.com to, to read about that. We'll talk about that in a later uh, news episode. But today we're we're here to talk about water cooler. So let's dive right in uh, to the water cooler and talk about what we've been doing. Uh, last week, I and Ben separately went to the It Experience. Uh, the It Experience is a thing they did in Hollywood when It Chapter One came out. It was a recreation of the It House from the movie and you kind of got it was kind of like a haunted house ex- maze experience where you got taken into the world of it uh they have returned to hollywood this time it is the what is it the dairy fair dairy yes. carnival yes the canal days festival and fun house yeah uh and uh it is more of it feels to me more like an Instagram experience than a themed horror uh, house. Uh, ben, what did you think of this experience? Um, I mean, I don't know if that's fully fair because the first one sort of felt like it was designed with social media in mind, certainly, too. Uh, this one has that same vibe. I don't know. I, I think for me, um, I was a little bit more impressed with the... 2017 version because that was a two-story experience it it took you into that Nebolt house and even though you know some of the rooms within that structure weren't didn't really make sense in terms of the story like the one of the characters garages was inside the Nebolt house which obviously isn't actually what happens in the movie it still sort of felt like you were walking into the novel a little bit and maybe it's because this uh, festival and, and funhouse thing isn't really a big part of the novel, but um, and, and because I haven't seen it chapter two yet. So it just sort of feels 
like slightly disconnected from the it story that I know to walk around in here. But, uh, you know, it was cool. I mean, it's always impressive to see them, you know, construct something at the corner of Hollywood and Vine that, you know, it wasn't there and isn't going to be there in a few weeks. And it's just uh, it's just this like flash in the pan, ephemeral kind of uh, carnival sort of vibe, you know? Yeah. And they also have like a mini carnival outside. There's like a Ferris wheel. There's some carnival games where you get to like, you know, those games where you shoot water, but you shoot it into Pennywise's mouth and um, there's stuff like that. But the 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 maze itself or whatever you want to call it, it's like a fun house. So like they have a section of fun house mirrors. There's a, it, it, it's a lot of things that you would expect from a fun house, but I guess in its own, it spin to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Ben did a video about this, which you can find on slash com. I'll link it in the show notes. So if you want to check out that, but I, I would also agree that I liked the first version of it better, which they actually had last year at the Warner brothers uh, horror made here, uh, like Halloween event at the, the oh, Warner Brothers right. lot. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, they relocated it. Um, I I think I liked it more because it felt like you were entering into the world of the story, and this just feels like a fun disposable experience. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually saw this right after seeing the movie. I saw the movie, walked a block to the experience, and uh, and uh, experienced the experience. So oh, so you still felt that way after seeing the movie? That's interesting. Yeah. I will say, uh, no spoilers or anything, but the the fair does have, like, two sequences in the movies, but it's not, like, a huge part of the movie, I would say. Mm. Yeah. Uh, not not in the way that the house was in the first uh, first film. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I've been going through a bit of camera buying recently. Uh, as you know, I have this uh, YouTube channel, Ordinary Adventures. We've been filming uh, trips to theme parks, movie events, stuff like that. I even did a video on the best magic tricks I saw at Magic Live last or two weeks ago. Uh, I'll link that in the show notes. Um, my camera, which I love, is the Canon G7X Mark II. Uh, it's awesome. It's a handheld point and shoot. Uh, it, it is lacking in a few things I would want, like a external microphone and 4K and slow motion abilities um, to do uh, high frame rate. Um and it also has developed a uh, dead pixel that you can see in night scenes. So uh, I, interestingly enough, uh, if or I, I guess it's not interesting, but if I am doing three vlogs a week along with Ketra, and um, to to fix a camera under warranty, you got to send it out. And they, I basically talked to them on the phone. And they're like, "Yeah, it could be upwards of a month that you lose your phone." So I I need to find a replacement phone. We need to have a second camera. In case this ever happens again, if that makes sense. And we were thinking about getting the G7X Mark III, which is the upgrade that just came out, was announced at VidCon. And this has everything I want. It has 4K, has high frame rate, has um, external mic ability. It is uh, supposed to be better in every single way. We bought it. We brought it to Disneyland. That video is going up today. And it was a complete disaster. The, there's some kind of huge autofocusing problem here. Uh, it's weird because a lot of the reviews I read do not talk about this, but then you go on YouTube and you search the name of this camera, and like the list is just like a ton of videos just talking about this audio autofocusing problem. Like it was like almost impossible to be in focus. Um, so I would not recommend anybody get the Canon G7X Mark III. 
Uh, and uh, I've also been looking for something low light because we're going into the season of Halloween where there's going to be a lot of events that take place at night and in dark places. Uh, and one of the cameras that everybody's been recommending to me, including our own David Chen, is the Sony A6400. So uh, it, it is a step up. It's a more expensive camera. It is a mirrorless, so it means uh, has lenses. I've purchased that. Uh, arrived yesterday i played with it it looks really really good i'm just wondering if it's going to be like too heavy you know it's a lot heavier and a lot bigger uh thing like you're not as conspicuous like with my canon g7x walking around like it looks like i just have a small point and shoot i look like uh you know a, a tourist or whatever but with this other thing it looks like more of a dslr professional camera rig and especially with the microphone i bought for it's like this huge uh, fuzzy microphone. So um, I'm interested to try this out. I'm going to try it out at D23 Expo, which starts tomorrow night. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, my adventures in camera buying. Brad, what have you been doing? Um, I've been having kind of some tech adventures of my own, I guess you could say. Uh, I, in, in rearranging furniture and stuff like that, now that my girlfriend has moved in, we decided that we, uh, wanted to mount the TV on the wall. Uh, in our living room, there is a, a brick wall and there's a fireplace and just the way the room is laid out, it kind of made it awkward to put the TV, uh, anywhere else. I had, I had, um, been, you know, mostly okay with it being in this corner of the room and, the way the furniture was arranged, but we realized that if we could, were able to mount it on the the brick wall, that it would kind of open up the room in a whole new way. And so, uh, I learned very quickly that having some paying somebody to mount the TV to uh, a wall, let alone a brick wall, is extremely expensive. Um, the the closest person like around here that was like willing to to do it, I was at Best Buy, uh, their Geek Squad group, and they wanted to charge a total of like $330 to mount it plus the cost of the bracket. Fortunately, I found out that they wouldn't do it unless you buy your TV at Best Buy and have a protection plan. So I started asking friends who had had their TVs mounted uh, who they had do it. And fortunately, um, a friend of mine, uh, their dad is pretty skilled with uh, carpentry and construction and all the jazz. And he's mounted a lot of things to brick walls. And so after getting it figured out, I bought a bracket and yesterday we got the TV mounted above the fireplace and it is awesome. So now the challenge comes with uh, trying to hook everything up and hide the wires as best we can. Do you guys, do any of you guys have any issues with like hiding wires, regardless of like whether your TV is mounted or on an entertainment unit or anything like that? This is why they're mounted because the, the process of getting them hidden, if you, do it right to put them behind the wall. It's so expensive. So uh, I hope you have hope to hear someone here has good advice for you because I've explored this and, and I've been defeated by it. Uh, I have these. They're literally like plastic strips with like sticky stuff on the back. They're the same color as the wall, and uh, I just put that over it. And honestly, it looks fine. Um, to be fair, I have like a big. So, so you're you're saying in the middle of the TV, there's like a plastic strip that goes straight. It's down. actually on the side. It's okay. on the on the side, and it, um. But I also have a really big like. Uh, it used to be my TV stand, but it's from IKEA. But I keep all like all my records in it and stuff. So that blocks most of the strip. So uh, you know, but that's what I have. 
Yeah, that's what I, I I looked up some of those like wire coverings and stuff like that. And I think that I can use them and maybe attach them uh, to the shelf that will be that we have on either side of the fireplace. There will be two shelves uh, that are the IKEA Calic shelves, um, and I think and they're they close enough to the TV where uh, you you'll probably see maybe like one exposed wire of like the power cord coming out maybe, um, but otherwise everything else should be able to be easily hidden and i i'm I'm gonna i think i'm gonna try and use some of those like uh plastic covers and just stick them to the back of the shelf so that way the wires are just flush with the actual shelves themselves so that you don't see them hanging in the background because i'm not sure every shelf we have uh in those cubes will have something that covers the back um but yeah so that's that's kind of the challenge right now is, is figuring that out yeah the one thing i like about having a projector is all the wires and stuff are behind you do you know what I mean? Like the so the projector is connected to your cable box or you know everything PlayStation whatever, uh, and that's all behind you. And it, like in my place, it's like hidden like in a IKEA shelf that you can't even see the stuff. So there's like I have a remote that RF control you know connects to an IR receiver inside that box and is able to control everything. So. Uh, that yeah, does that cool. does not help you. I know uh, it does not. Um, I have seen some like mounts where you can actually like mount like PlayStations and Apple TVs and everything to the wall behind your TV, so that you have like less wires coming from outside the TV. Do you know what I mean? I I don't. I don't even understand how that would work. Imagine like your Apple TV is like mounted to the wall, like sideways. You mean like? So that it's flat sitting on the wall? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So there's mats yeah. like that, but I, I with a brick wall that might be difficult too. Yeah, that's the, yeah, and I'm trying I was already I was trying to root, like make sure that I drilled as little holes as possible in the bricks since uh um if uh, at some point I think uh, I I mean I know my parents are going to be moving into this house um so, and they're going to they're not necessarily sure they want to use the mount, so we we'll, might end up having to replace the mortar, which we already talked about, and like it was going to be easy to do anyway. But yeah, so it's just it's just trying to make it so that it still looks neat uh, with all the consoles and stuff that we have hooked up to it. Yeah, uh, when I was moving or originally years ago, I looked at some places that had brick walls, and I I decided against them because I have so much art, and art is so hard to hang on brick walls. It's actually, uh, so actually, um, there are these cool clips that I found because I, I actually I've hung some of my uh, prints and stuff on on these brick walls. There are these little metal like copper clips that have um, like a bendable clamp on the bottom and these teeth on the top. And uh, they, they're sized to pretty much fit just a standard brick size as long as you have like space in the uh, in the mortar to push them in. And oh, really? they have. Yeah, and they, they actually work really well. They have two different spots for hanging hanging the frame uh, frames on, whether you have like the little hooks on your frame or, or you have a wire. Uh, and they're really sturdy because of the teeth and how they clamp to the bricks. Um, and they're super cheap. Just look them up on Amazon and look up like uh, like brick frame clamp or something like that. Um, and they're they're pretty good. So people are learning all about cameras today. They're learning all about mounting stuff on brick walls. And they're learning about it uh, experiences. But by the way, I should say that I think that's running in Hollywood for like the next month. Uh, tickets are sold out, but I know they do standby lines. So if you want to check out that it experience and you're in Hollywood, um, you know, do a Google search. I'm sure. I, I want to say it ends on September 8th, which is like only a couple days after oh. the movie oh. um, premieres, which is an odd thing. But uh, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah. Uh, ben, I saw that you were at the Hollywood Bowl. 
Yeah, I had a chance to see Jurassic Park in concert. And um, I don't know. I mean, you know, talking about being in Hollywood, if you guys out there listening are in Hollywood or ever come by to visit, I would highly, highly recommend stopping by the Hollywood Bowl and trying to check something out there, because especially in the summertime, it's like the perfect summer experience. The weather is always great. And it's just um, it's it's just so cool to be in such a like a historic venue and watch a movie and see the score for that film being played um, you know, accompanied by the the uh, Los Angeles Philharmonic and uh, David Newman was the conductor of this one. John Williams obviously did the score for Jurassic Park, but Williams has, himself was not actually there, like leading the the orchestra or anything. But still, um, just watching this movie on a on a huge screen, or uh, actually multiple screens at the Hollywood Bowl, and then um, being able to to hear that score performed live was pretty awesome. Um, guys, hot take: Jurassic Park, good movie <laughs> and good score. Uh, yeah, the, you know, the, the actually the first half of the movie, I got, I kept getting sucked into just watching the movie instead of paying attention to the performers who are on the stage, which is, I think, a testament to just how good that movie is and, and how perfectly it's constructed. And I kept having to, like, remind myself, like, OK, you, you could watch Jurassic Park anytime. You're actually here to sort of pay attention to the music part of it. Um, but it seems like the first half of Jurassic Park, they did an intermission. Um, it seemed like the first half of the movie, the score wasn't really I mean, it was there and like you hear the theme a few times, but it seemed pretty low key. And then the back half was is really where it, it kicks in in a major way. So um, I never really noticed that before because I always just sort of watched the movie as a, a whole experience. And I haven't haven't like pulled that out to to um, analyze or study the music or any or anything like that. Um, but being in that environment allowed me to pay more attention to that. And I noticed that the music definitely like ramps up in a, in a significant way in the back half of the film. I feel like th- this is the case with a, w- a lot of films I've seen like in concert, like I've seen back to the future in concert at the Hollywood bowl. And you always get like sucked into the movie because it's, it's always a good movie. They don't do these things with bad movies. Uh, <laughs> that would be interesting though. <laughs> but I think, I think it's also a testament to just how good the orchestra is too, that they're playing the score so perfectly oh, yeah. that like, it's so seamless that you don't even notice that there's a live, you know, orchestra playing it in front of you. That That's one of the things that I've actually really enjoyed about. I've done, um, Star Wars, I've done uh, Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, um, and uh, Harry Potter. And it's just every single time the orchestra is playing the, the music, ha- they've been phenomenal. And there's like little moments where like I, in the scores that I love where I wondered if it would sound just like it does on, you know, a professional recording from the soundtrack. And they've just they've nailed it every single time. It's it's incredible. Yeah. I'd like to imagine that they're actually not playing. They're just, like, miming it, and it's just playing the score <laughs> from the soundtrack. Would anybody even know? Maybe. I don't know. Okay. Uh, what we've been watching. Let's move on to that segment. <laughs> let's talk about uh, It Chapter 2, because both Chris and I saw this movie. Uh, I'll be more brief about this, because I know this is more of Chris's realm. Uh, we, the review embargo is not up, but the social embargo is up. So I'm basically going to say what I said on social media, and that is that I really liked it. Chapter one, it chapter two, I don't think is as good of a movie. I do think it might be scarier. That's not saying much because it chapter one, I don't think was th- that scary. It was more creepy, but I, I think this does have some more jump scares and, and stuff like that. And uh, I, it, it feels. It felt a little long to me. It felt like it was lacking the charm of those uh, 
coming of age, the coming of age story, like the, the kid characters. I wanted more of the kid characters. Uh, but uh, Chris, what did you think of it? Chapter two. Uh, I liked it. I wanted to love it, but I only liked it. Um, it. I feel like the first like 45 minutes are really clunky. And uh, even though it's a long movie, I feel like the, the that first half of the movie when, you know, the, the adult losers club is all coming back to Derry is really rushed where it, you can tell like the movie just wants to get them back in town so they can start doing stuff. And I get that, but it feels like it's literally like uh, like a, a blink of an eye and they're already home. And I don't know, maybe I, I'm, uh, my mind is, is thinking of the book too much where it actually takes a lot of time for them to get back. And I know you can't have that to be, you know, identical in a movie, but it just seems way too quick. Um, but after that, I think it, it eventually finds its footing. Um, I do think there's some like really weird direction choices, the, like the, the way Andy Muschietti shoots some scenes where characters literally like look directly into the camera and they're like, <laughs> it's, it's really like, I don't know what he was going for there. I don't know if he was going for like a science of the lambs thing or what, but it, it doesn't really work. But beyond that, um, uh, you know, I feel like the, it eventually... Chris, I, I think you're coming off too negative here. You like this movie more than me. I did, but you know, <laughs> you know, not, no movie is perfect. And yeah. uh, I gotta say, I'm getting a lot of grief on Twitter for my, my post, even though I'm ultimately going to give this film a positive review, but because apparently you can't, <laughs> you can't acknowledge any sort of criticism about a film or, or it sounds like you hate it, but uh, there's a lot to love here. Um, this movie, what it does really well is it gets Stephen King's uh, literary voice down really well. Stephen King, you know, yes, he, he's known for horror, but he's also like this really, you know, if you read enough of his work, you realize he's this like corny nerd. And that's kind of what I love about his writing. Like, it's very earnest. It's very like, like sort of like all shucksy like he you know he, he's a he's a big nerd and he's got a big heart even though he writes you know about nasty deadly things you know he ultimately is kind of like a softy and this movie really nails that down where you know yeah there's a lot of like nasty brutal stuff that happens in the movie but it, it's ultimately a movie that has like you know a really positive sort of you know vibe to it which uh, is is not always easy to do and um, you know, but beyond that, I, I wanted to like it a little more than I did. Um, I love the cast. The cast is, is their cast really well. They look like the parts and they're all good actors, but they just don't click the way the kids did, like the way the kids interacted with each other and interact in this. Cause they're in this one feels so much better than the adults. And you know, part of that is, yeah, they've been separated for 27 years, but, you know, when they get back together, they're supposed to be sort of like in sync again. And some of them, you know, are even like, you know, falling in love again. And they're, they're supposed to have that chemistry, get it, you know, back. And it just never comes back. Um, that said, uh, Bill Hader is uh, phenomenal. I think he's the, he's the best part as the adult Richie. He gets a lot of, um, he gets a lot to do. I was worried they were going to sort of like sidetrack him because he's not like the biggest star in the movie. Like, you know, Jessica Chastain and James McAvoy are, are technically bigger stars than him. But I, I feel like he gets honestly like the most to do in the movie, which I was really happy with because he's, he's, he's really 
uh, fun to watch. And I, I'm just, I'm excited to see his career. You know, not that he's like an unknown, but I, f- <laughs> I feel like, like with this and like with Barry, he's going to start getting a lot more movie roles, like big movie roles. And I'm, I'm kind of excited about that because I, I really think he's a genuinely good actor who has a lot of range that a lot of people haven't tapped yet. So, uh, yeah, I'm also glad that he's going to be getting roles that are not just like the comedy sidekick guy. Right, because even in this, like, yeah, he's funny and he does a lot of funny stuff, but he has a, a a lot of he has a few like big emotional moments, and he really sells them really well. I don't I want to give away spoilers, but near the end, he has a lot of stuff that he does that's really like serious, and he he does really well with it. And if anyone you know out there, if you watched Barry, you you know by now that he actually is a really good dramatic actor because he's he's really more dramatic on Barry than he is funny. So. But yeah, overall, I liked it. I wanted to love it. I didn't love it. I just liked it. I think the first one is better, but I also appreciate how big this movie. It's a real. I can't remember the last time I saw a horror movie this big. It's, it feels like a blockbuster, and horror movies don't really feel like that these days. Especially like studio horror movies. They're really, you know, you think of the Conjuring movies. They're they're really low key movies, and this this movie is swinging for the fences. And it's you know not everything works, but I really appreciate the risks this movie is willing to take for sure um okay let's uh move on to mind hunter uh jacob you watched the second season uh yes it took after two years of waiting for mind hunter to return uh david fincher's serial killer netflix show is back and i watched it all in about two days because it is addictive as hell and now i have to wait another two years or however long david fincher decides to make us wait uh guys uh mind hunter is really fantastic if you haven't seen it yet it is uh, a fictionalized but uh, often true story about the beginnings of uh, criminal profiling following the F- team of FBI agents who set out to interview serial killers and learn how they function and think so they can capture other serial killers. So it's sort of the very early days of you know learning how killers think and in, in, set in a period before people thought you know you could learn anything from killers. And season two is really just descent into the darkness as... Season one is all the, is the characters all learning, you know, in theory, this should work. In theory, kill us like this. Season two is them trying to take their theories into the real world and try to solve a real case, which is, in this case, the, the Atlanta child murders of the late 70s and the early 80s. And things don't go easily or well for the characters. And it is such a gripping, dark, <laughs> dark uh, show. And what I like about this series is that uh, Chris can correct me wrong here, but I don't think there's any on-screen violence. I don't think you ever see anybody actually die on Mindhunter. But you get interviews with people who commit murders. You have um, descriptions and photographs of after the fact. And it is more traumatizing and upsetting and, than most shows that depict graphic violence on screen. And I, I'm just really becoming increasingly obsessed with Mindhunter. And Chris, I, I know this is also your favorite Netflix show, right? At least your favorite live-action Netflix show? Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, I guess like BoJack Horseman would be the animated favorite, but this is definitely my my favorite live-action Netflix show. And do you agree with me that this is um, not necessarily better than season one, but a good escalation of the ideas from season one pushing the new territory? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a great way to take, I said this in the review I wrote, where like the first season was about setting up rules, and this season is really about proving, you know, those rules will be broken. Like, there's no... Like, yeah, you can write a profile of, of a serial killer and yeah, you might come close to getting it right, but it's not, it's not really an exact science. And um, 
there's like uh, I don't want to use I feel weird using the term funny because it's, it, you shouldn't say funny about serial killer stuff. But there's a part where they're talking about the BTK, BTK killer and uh, the one character like one character offhandedly says like, oh, this guy doesn't go to church. And if you know anything about the real BTK killer, he was actually not only did he go to church, he was like. A, a huge staple in his local church and like that's just like this like weird like in joke highlighting that you know as good as these guys are they're never really going to get it a hundred percent right and uh so on, I, re- I really appreciated that because like as much as i love the show i felt like the first season it was sort of turning into like the Avengers of serial killers where like they would just go from one serial killer to a next and it'd be like ah here's this guy and uh, this this one sort of dials that down a, a little and it actually takes time to show like you know the victims and stuff like that you know not like the survivors and so i, I really appreciated that yeah and i appreciate that the even though jonathan groff still has a great deal to do in this season i feel the, the main focus of this season the the main character if you will of this batch of episodes uh holt um uh, uh bill tench i feel like really steps forward and um, McCallum is one of those actors who we've seen just in everything. He's actually in Alien 3, uh, if you want to get a long, ongoing David Fincher connection. But he's just this kind of incredible character, an incredible character actor, playing a guy who's, you know, this very traditional masculine figure uh, who, you know, hides his feelings. But at the same time, the show does not treat that or him as a buffoon or somebody who's behind the times. He's open to new ideas. He pushes back against the right and wrongs of both directions. And he's put in some emotional and ethical ringers throughout the show. And I feel like, you know, he, this is the next day. This has to be like the next David Harbor blow up, right? Like I think eventually he's, he's going to reach the people realize, Oh, this middle-aged character actor is actually awesome. And we all love him and he's hot and, and nobody's talked about him until now. What happened? Uh, <laughs> Chris, if I, are you also on board the whole the colony train? Absolutely. He is. He's great. Um, really, really good actors. They, they don't just, you know, they're not just good at delivering their lines. They're really good at listening um and you know you might think you know oh i can act like i'm listening you know you're you just sit there and you don't talk but it actually takes some level of skill to make it look like you're really like listening in a scene and he's really good at doing that where you know he's he doesn't say a lot but you can see like the the gears turning behind his his eyes as he's like taking everything in he's really good at that and he's really good at playing this sort of like gruff guy who you you think like oh he's this guy's probably gonna be an asshole but as you get to know him you 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 see he's really a good guy who's just you know has this this gruff exterior i know we need to move on soon uh but i want to talk about one more thing that's episode five of this season because i think it's my favorite mindhunter episode for two reasons one it has uh damon harriman showing up as charles manson in a really killer one-scene performance. And Harriman also played Charles Manson once a time in Hollywood. So it's a very interesting study in contrast there. But I also want to talk about uh, Cameron Britton coming back for uh, one more episode as Ed Kemper, the serial killer who figures a lot in season one. We, we meet him one more time. I think it says a lot about this show that when Cameron Britton shows back up, my initial thought wasn't, oh no, it's that terrible monster who killed tons of women and had sex with their heads. But my first thought was, oh, Ed's back. I'm happy to see Ed. And, and I was so aghast at my own reaction to having weirdly fallen in love with a monster, I think actually speaks to what's powerful about this show in general, which is putting you in a room with bad people and asking you to see them in human. And it made me uncomfortable and delighted at the same time. 
Okay, so I think we're moving on to Good Boys. J- Jacob, this is a film that you saw at South by. I saw South by, and I loved it a lot. So I'm very curious to hear what yeah. you guys think. I think your quotes are even on the trailer. Is uh, that correct? M- mine or Matt Donato's? We both oh, wrote a little bit. One about of them. It. Yeah. Okay, well, one of our quotes is on the trailer, um, and Ben and I both saw this last week. Uh, I I liked it. Uh, I don't want to say I loved it. I don't feel like it's as good as like super bad. I think every, everybody's trying to do super bad, like with uh, Booksmart. This I, I don't um, quite think anything is up that high, at least in my turn, in my mind. Um, but I do, and I do think like at, at times this film uh, leans too heavily on. You know, kids just doing vulgar stuff that should be funny because, oh, they're kids and saying stuff that they shouldn't be saying and doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. Um, and, and sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's it's not. Uh, sometimes. Uh, but I, I think what su- is surprising about this film is it has a good emotional core and it says some interesting things about growing up that uh, I think a lot of these kind of movies don't like get into that kind of territory. Uh, ben, what did you think? Yeah, I agree. I think more of its jokes landed for me than not, which is uh, seems to be a rarity for major studio comedies these days. So I was um, pleasantly surprised by that. I wish, you know, again, all of the best jokes, I think, or or a majority of them were in the trailer. And I only saw like one trailer for this. It's not like I've been, you know, hunting down all the TV spots for good boys. It's just that one trailer that seemed to be played over and over and over again. Um and it just seemed like a lot of the best stuff was in that. So I was slightly disappointed to be so familiar with it, but I think a lot of it works really well in context. And I think the thing that um, that you just said and, and what I remember Jacob talking about it from South By is the best part about the movie, the, the heartfelt, um, the sweetness of it. You know, the that that really is the core of the movie. It's not just the kids doing adult things because and it's funny because they're kids. It's like you can tell that it's built that that is the um, that's the skin on top of the skeleton, you know. Yeah, um, I I mean I hate to keep on comparing it to Superbad, but I, I feel like there there is like a really close connection. Like there's even a scene where they're like in a supermarket trying to steal beer, and you know a cop comes in, and it's like we've seen this before. Like it, it just seems like they would try to stay a little bit further away from that. But I guess uh, that, maybe that cop the... scene is so funny. Peter. I know I, it's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, I just feel like, you know, you'd be like, oh, there is this beloved movie about kids that, like, we're trying to not get compared to. Let's stay away from what they did. And it feels like they didn't quite stay f- too far enough away for me. But I don't know. Um, d- Jacob, do you have anything else to add on this? I know you talked about this a long time ago when we had South by coverage, so people might not yeah. remember it. I am planning to see it again this week. My, my, my wife wants to see it. There are lines of dialogue in this movie that I'm, I'm already quoting and uh, have been quoting, which I want to spoil here. But uh, go back to what you said, Peter. Uh, I disagree slightly that um, about, I think what you said with it, too much of humor comes from kids saying inappropriate things. For me, it's less about kids saying inappropriate things and more about kids not understanding anything appropriate. And that to me is funnier than, like a, a kid saying the F word isn't funny. But a kid thinking and understands what the F word means and trying to use it and using it incorrectly is funny. And for me, that's why this movie works for me. That's I think that's why it clicked hard for me. Okay. Uh, let's move on to uh, Brad. Brad, what have you been watching? 
Um, I haven't been watching much because, again, I've still been busy kind of moving furniture around and getting stuff organized here, and it's kind of been occupying a lot of my free time. Uh, but I did finally take the time to watch Rocco's Modern Life, Static Cling, which is the TV special that Nickelodeon made that ended up debuting on Netflix uh, the weekend before last. And I have to say, this is fantastic. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite nostalgic revivals of anything that I've seen. Uh, not only is the animation style still perfectly in tune with the um, the style that it was back when the show was on Nickelodeon in the 90s, but the voices don't sound like they've changed at all with, with time. There are so many fun Easter eggs for anybody who watched the show as like religiously and obsessively as I did when I was a kid. And on top of that, the story of this revival is just awesome. It is uh, relevant and topical uh, without feeling like, like a lot of people will think that it's forced, but it's not because the, the story in this thing ties back to one of the best episodes that Rocco's Modern Life ever did, which already was a metaphor uh, in itself, and I won't. Uh, you might have seen what the the storyline I'm talking about being talked about on social media. I won't necessarily give it away if, if you haven't yet, just because it could be a, a cool surprise. But just the way it handles the idea of nostalgia and embracing change and not being stuck in your your ways, while still being this uh, great um, nostalgic revival of a show that people loved when they were kids in the '90s. Uh, it's 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 great. It's just I, I seriously loved it. I've I've watched it twice so far, uh, and like, yeah, like I said, it's it's one of my favorite uh, reboots, if you will, that I've seen. It's a Rocker Modern Life Static Cling. Yeah, Rocker Modern Life Static Cling. It's on Netflix now. Cool. What else have you been watching? Uh, so, so I put on two uh, movies that I had seen a decent amount from my younger years, and. Neither of them are particularly great. One of them you could say is downright terrible and is probably considered one of the worst movies uh, ever made. And the other one is just kind of a charming movie that you might uh, that you might have enjoyed when you were a kid uh, too. And that's the first one is uh, Clifford. Has anybody here seen Clifford with Martin Short and Charles Grodin? No, I, I vaguely remember not liking this movie. Is this the one where Martin Short plays a kid? Yes. Oh God. No. Brad, no. Here's the thing. When I was younger, I I really liked Martin Short because of Father the Bride and Three Amigos. And so I, I had randomly caught this movie on a movie channel at one point. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, is he playing a kid or what? And this movie is bad. It's dumb. It's stupid. But there's something about Martin Short's performance that still makes me laugh every now and then. Just the way he plays this kid in such a, a just a signature Martin Short fashion, the way he says certain things and how dedicated Charles Grodin is to this role is so weird because of how bad it is. And like the way he slowly unravels throughout this movie is also extremely entertaining. But don't get me wrong, again, this movie is terrible, it's bad, but I wanted to rewatch it because I hadn't seen it in a long time since I, I had like uh, stumbled upon it when I was a kid. Uh, and enjoyed it, but it's available on Amazon Prime right now. If you haven't seen it and you want to, if you want to see just how like weird this movie is and how stupid it is, like you you can watch it. It's uh, I, I think it's worth watching at least once. Half of this podcast just said this movie's bad, but if you want to watch it, it's available. Seriously, I mean it's it's just it's one of those movies that's so weird that I I, just, I feel like it's worth checking out at least once. Okay, well, um, what was the other movie you saw? Uh, the other movie is Larger Than Life, which is uh, the Bill Murray movie where he 
goes cross country with an elephant that he inherits from uh, his father. This is another movie that I liked when I was younger. Uh, it came out in 1996, so I, w- I was around 10 years old. And again, Bill Murray was an actor who I'd liked because of uh, I'd seen Ghostbusters and uh, Groundhog Day. Uh, and what about Bob at a young age? And so, you know, this was just an extension of that. And honestly, this movie is not too bad. It's definitely a family-friendly uh, movie, but it has some uh, fun supporting cast member appearances by Janine Garofalo, including a totally wacky uh, performance by Matthew McConaughey as this eccentric, like, conspiracy theorist truck driver that Bill Murray uh, hitches a ride with. Uh, like, he is, McConaughey is, like, hyper and crazy and has a very thick Southern accent. Uh, and yeah, this this movie it's it's very enjoyable for for what it is uh, for being you know a family friendly comedy and Bill Murray has some great you know Bill Murray moments in it uh, as he does even in some of the worst movies he's made uh, and that's also available on Amazon Prime right now. So all the crap Amazon Prime. <laughs> uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Well, I was sick for a big chunk of last week, so I spent a lot of time watching Netflix. That's how I got through Mindhunter so fast. But I also started watching Netflix's Castlevania series. This is an animated show based on the Konami video game series that originated in the 80s and still off and on these days. And I put it on because I heard it was good. I was skeptical. But it it's generally good. It is an American production, but it uses a very heavy Japanese animation style, so it looks like an anime. And I don't know where to start. It's such a... Uh, Warren Ellis, the comic book writer, uh, probably one of the best of all time, wrote writes every episode of the series, and the history of this is, is fascinating because he was hired to write a film adaptation of Castlevania in the mid-2000s. The film fell apart, then the rights fell to somebody else who brought the Netflix, and they took Warren Ellis' script for the movie and said, can we split this into episodes and make this into a TV show? So Warren Ellis split it into four parts, and they had four episodes for a season, and then he took his outlines for, for movies two and three that were also planned but never written, and those are season two. Uh, so it's it's actually Warren Ellis turning the trilogy of Castlevania movies he wrote 10 years ago into a Netflix television series. And and that shouldn't work as well as it does. This is a genuinely really, really good show. And the original video games were pretty much you move forward, you hit bad guys, and you fight Dracula. At the end, you always fight Dracula. And Castlevania series uh, humanizes Dracula and gives him motivation for being evil as opposed to just being you know the monster at the end of the castle. And it has this really dry, macabre sense of humor. It is extremely violent to the point where there are times where I thought, oh, now you're just trying to, you know, show your big boy show. But uh, I admired its nerve uh, to really unapologetically be a ultra-violent animated video game adaptation full of foul humor and really good character writing. Like it, it, I was impressed by Dracula. I was impressed by all the human characters. And season two leans very heavily onto... What is it like for Dracula to actually try to run a supernatural war on humanity and become sort of a Game of Thrones-esque uh, tale of all the people in, his, in Dracula's court trying to gain Dracula's approval? And uh, HT, have you watched Castlevania? I know it's American, but it's, it's very try- it's trying to be anime very hard. I haven't seen it. I never really had an attachment to the video game series, and I generally kind of shy away from edgelord animes so that (laughs) basically the kind that you sort of described the ultra violent more style than substance type of anime um that tries a little too hard to be extremely edgy and extremely dark and um 
I don't often enjoy those very much, so I kind of didn't really have an interest in watching Castlevania. Yeah, I can't recommend it to everybody. There are people who are going to bounce off this very hard, uh, but I think the, the Warren Ellis' writing is really sharp. The animation is really good, and it's and I was ultimately really won over by it uh, in a way that I was not expecting. And so that's Castlevania. It's probably the best video game adaptation I've ever seen. Sorry, to take the Pikachu. You've been dethroned. Oh no. <laughs> Uh, uh, but, also, oh. Wait, but it doesn't count as a movie. No, oh, it's, it's it's still an adaptation. Yeah. Oh, it's, okay. It, Fair enough. Yeah, it's, it's it's better than any other video game movie I've ever seen. Uh, and I guess it's because it takes the core tenets of Castlevania, which is fight monsters in gothic castles, and really builds on that by making characters you really end up caring about and storytelling that that really is compelling. And it it is. The devotional to, to the source material when it needs to be, but it's also not afraid to realize, oh, this was a very simple, very stupid arcade game. Let's, you know, let Warren Ellis craft characters onto it, and he does. So, that's Castlevania. On the opposite end of the Netflix spectrum, I watched most of season three of Glow. Glow is really good. Uh, it remains very good. I'm not sure I like season three as much as season two just yet, but I think that this is... One of the funniest and most moving shows on Netflix. And the fact that it's a half hour long uh, makes it very easy to binge. And I have nothing else to add other than Glow's real good. You should watch Glow. Uh, and finally, I caught up with Hobbs and Shaw. That movie's... Ugh. Guys, uh, why is Hobbs and Shaw not a slam dunk? Uh, I ended up ultimately being a little bit warmer on it than I was expecting. Uh, because like the last third or so does pick up the pace quite a bit. But for, for David Leach, who's directed so many good action movies... The action here is lackluster. The uh, verbal sparring between Jason Statham and The Rock is not good. Like, it's not funny. There's no nothing surprising about them insulting each other. And the movie pauses for long periods of time for these two to, like, just exchange barbed insults. And they're not good insults. And and they're ultimately, this pairing ends up working when they work together. But by the but back half of the movie, when they're actually, like, talking more about, you know, how do we solve this problem as opposed to who has a bigger dick? It's actually a far more entertaining partnership. Uh, I'm just, I don't understand how Hobbs and Shaw can be so lifeless, especially in the first half where every action scene is set in a freaking warehouse and all, all the action looks the same to the point where my wife traditionally has to go to the bathroom about, about twice per movie. So if I've seen the movie already, we have a coded signal where I tap her a certain number of times, let her know, hey, next five minutes are good for you to go to the bathroom. When every time the action scene started, she went to the bathroom just because she was so bored by the action. And she, and <laughs> she does not she does not get bored by action easily. We, we saw John Wick 3 together. She loves – and we saw John Wick 3 in the same theater we saw Hobbs and Shaw in. So leaving that theater after seeing John Wick 3 there a few months ago is like just makes you realize, oh, maybe Stad Cholesky is the real action director of the original John Wick duo. Ben, I know it's been a few weeks for you. Have you soured more on this? Has it gotten better for you? It, will I turn around on this one? No, I don't think you're going to turn around on it. It has gotten a little bit worse in my mind. I think that um, I, I try to give it a little bit of a pass for like trying the uh, to incorporate the family dynamics in a, a little bit of a different way to sort of keep a, a thematic connection with the larger Fast and Furious universe. But you're right. The, the jokes did not work for me uh, at all. And I, I was just... Um, it, it's like the worst parts of of uh, of Good Boys, where you can see the joke as it's being constructed, 
for Hobbs and Shaw, every single joke is you can see it being constructed, and it's just it's painful to watch like really really bad jokes being told that way. So, um, and because so much of the movie is that, it was uh, ultimately a disappointment for me. Yeah, for a movie full of such actors like Satham and The Rock, it is powerfully uncool, which is something I didn't think I'd say about that. But this is my transition to you, Ben, because um, taking over Peter's job because you watch one of the coolest movies of all time. <laughs> yeah, I watched uh, Les, Les Samurai, which uh, is a 1967 movie directed by, written and directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. I'd never seen this before. It stars uh, Alan Delane, Delon, Elaine Delon. I'm not entirely sure. I'm probably butchering a French uh, pronunciation. There. I've always heard Delon, so I think you're okay. okay. Um, and uh, I guess his wife is the the female lead in the film, and this movie is really really good guys if you have not seen this it's available on the uh, criterion channel uh, streaming service right now um it is a really lean movie it doesn't really there's not too much by way of like style or flashy direction or or um crazy cinematography or anything like that it's just a uh an airtight crime thriller and it has a really interesting ending i'm not going to say what that is but i it's one of those movies that actually um you know, it, it's stylish in its own way without being like overly stylized, but it also has enough going on where the ending, I was like, oh, there's actually more to this than just a, you know, a, a tight fisted sort of crime thriller. So that's Lay Samurai. It's available on Criterion. I would highly recommend it. It's it's really, really good. Oh, Ben, have you seen The Cirque Rouge? No, I haven't. It is also Jean-Pierre Melville uh, and it also stars Elaine, the, the, uh, I'm sorry, Elaine Delon. And it is, uh, in my opinion, even better. It is about an hour. It's like an hour longer. It's a, it's a very, very big movie. Uh, but it feels like the uh, if that was the warm up to the Circular Rouge, so I would very much add that to your list next. Oh man, yeah, I'm definitely adding that. It sounds awesome. Um, speaking of awesome, I also saw the standoff at Sparrow Creek, and this movie I think came out earlier this year. I know it played the festival circuit uh, last year, but this is the directorial debut of Henry Dunham. Uh, Henry Dunham, who also wrote this movie, and holy crap, this movie is really great. I remember Jacob talking about this when you saw it at what was it, Fantastic Fest last year? Is that right? Indeed, Fantastic Fest. Oh, man. Uh, so it's basically a movie about a bunch of, um, what would you even call them? Like uh, a, a militia uh, out in the woods who realize that a police officer has been killed and they overhear this on a, on a cop radio and they all sort of convene in this warehouse to figure out what to do about it because they think that their their militia is going to be blamed for it. And then they realize that one of them was actually the person who committed this uh, atrocious mass shooting, basically, at a funeral of a cop. So that it's basically just a, a one-room type of movie or one-location movie set almost entirely in this warehouse where these guys just um, try to not pick each other off one by one, but like psychologically... Uh, pick through each other and try to figure out who's responsible for for this thing so they all don't go down for this one person's crime. And uh, it's a very simple sort of setup, but it is um, a really breathtaking movie. I was completely like glued to the screen the entire time. The, um, the dialogue is spectacular. It's one of those movies where especially for a debut, you watch it and go, holy hell, who made this movie and what is he doing next? Because I cannot wait to see it. So um, the standoff at Sparrow Creek is on Hulu right now. And I think it's one of my favorite movies of this year, if, if indeed it did 
technically come out in early 2019, it's going to, it's probably going to end up on, on my top 10 of the year because it's, it's so good. It's very, uh, Reservoir Dogs-y. And if you have seen <laughs> Tarantino's movie and enjoyed it, then I definitely recommend this because it has a little bit of that, that vibe to it. Um, who else, who else here has seen this besides Jacob? I think Chris Anybody? saw it. Okay. All right. Uh, Chris, do you have anything to say? Anything to add about the standoff at Sparrow Creek? No, I, I, I believe I've talked about this before, and I think everything I, I agree with everything you say. It's really good. Nice. All right. Uh, so Fleabag, another thing that uh, almost everybody here has seen, except for me, I finally caught up with this. My wife and I watched both seasons, and I'm not going to add anything else. You guys have said it wonderfully already. Uh, the show is a masterpiece, and uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a straight-up genius. So both seasons of that show are on Amazon Prime right now, and uh, it could not come with a higher recommendation for me. Uh, I also saw Under the Silver Lake, and this one I'm still sort of trying to wrap my head around. So David Robert Mitchell, the guy who directed It Follows wrote and directed this movie that stars Andrew Garfield as a sort of a scumbag in LA, modern day LA, who tries to figure out what happened to this neighbor girl that lives in his apartment complex when she mysteriously disappears. And it's sort of got like a, um, like on paper, it sort of sounds like a, like a modern day noir, like a, I don't know, almost like brick or, um, or like a Dashiell Hammett kind of story but in practice it's like a little it's a it's a really scummy movie i can't really put my finger on why maybe it's just that andrew garfield's character doesn't have a job and like it seems like you can smell the stink coming off of him like he i don't think he takes a shower in the entire movie he's just like a real uh i don't know not a bro but like a um he seems like one of those guys who's just like constantly obsessed. And this movie is a lot about, uh, you know, it's very much about obsession and and conspiracy. And uh, it, the story goes places that I had no idea that it was going to go there. And Chris, you're talking about um, it. Chapter two being like a really, really big horror movie. This feels like a really big indie movie to me, like the, the scope of this thing. By the time it ends, I was like, what in the hell is David Robert Mitchell doing here? And I, I still don't know if I have an answer to that question. Um, has anybody else here seen Under the Silver Lake? Uh, I have. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it, the, the best comparison I can make for it is it's a lot like Southland Tales in that it's just a whole bunch of weird shit that doesn't entirely work, but you kind of love what it's doing anyway. Yeah, I appreciated the ambition of it, and I was totally mesmerized by the entire thing. So I, I don't know if it, like, coheres into anything that I found ultimately satisfying, but I, I have to say that, like, the experience of watching it was an enjoyable one. So if you want to watch Under the Silver Lake, that's available on Amazon Prime right now. Uh, I also watched The uh, Bicycle Thieves, which is uh, Vittorio De Sica's 1948 Italian movie. I've heard that this is like one of the greatest movies of all time. This is available on the Criterion channel right now, and uh, I just decided to check it out. And it is very, very good. It's a movie about desperation and uh, class and politics and society and uh, a lot of things. But the, the actual story of it is this guy who is a, a father. Uh, gets a job in Rome in uh, right after World War II, and the job requires him to have a bicycle. So he he has this bike, and it gets stolen, and his entire livelihood is depending on uh, is dependent on whether or not he finds this bike from the thieves who stole it from him. And um, it, like I said, it's it's all about desperation. You could feel 
the the sweat and the um the angst and the like uh the, you know the fact that this character's life is hanging in the balance and the life of his family too it's uh it's sort of like a heartbreaking thing to spend whatever an hour and a half like watching somebody in that in that state because it's like so relatable even though obviously this movie took place you know in in a a time and place that I'm not familiar with but um the the core of it is so relatable and I think that's why a uh, big part of the reason why it's um it's so highly acclaimed so that's bicycle thieves and then finally this morning I watched a film called Stalker from 1979 it was uh directed by Andre Tarkovsky and I'd heard around the time that Annihilation was coming out that this movie was sort of an influence on that and I have not read up enough about it because I literally just finished watching this before I started work today. But uh, man, what a movie this is. It's uh, it's very long. It's like two hours and 40 minutes. And it's about it sounds a lot like Annihilation. It's a, it's about a guy who leads these two people on an expedition into an area called the zone, which is very much like the shimmer in Annihilation, where there is like a room in the middle of this place that grants a person their most uh, their innermost desires, basically. And um, it's about these these three guys just walking through this otherworldly environment and arguing with each other and having political discussions and and, um, you know, conversations about life and and uh, what they're going to do with when their desires are granted. And it's um, it's a really fascinating movie. It's it's very long and very in depth, you know, in depth and very beautifully shot. Uh, I think I saw something that like several of its shots go on for like more than four minutes. Um, so it's definitely not something that like you can watch while you're you know <laughs> checking your phone or whatever. But uh, it's uh, yeah, the Wikipedia page says that the film contains 142 shots in 163 minutes with an average shot length of more than one minute and many shots lasting for more than four minutes. So it's um, yeah, it's it's a crazy movie. Has anybody else seen Stalker by any chance? I have. I'm seeing all the films you've seen, Ben. All right. I've seen this too. Yeah, I have this on the uh, the Criterion Collection. Put out a Blu-ray of this. I have that, and it is uh, it's an exhausting movie. It's so long. It feels like it takes you like on a complete journey to this. Like it feels like it literally takes you to that yeah. that other zone it goes into. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, so, w- do you understand this movie, Chris? Because I I walked away from it going like. I appreciated that experience, but I don't really know if I got the movie. <laughs> God, uh, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I, I really didn't get it quote unquote, but I still kind of appreciated just being taken along for this really odd, uh, surreal nightmare dream journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's a big part of why I loved uh, Annihilation so much. So it, it's definitely, if you like that movie, I would recommend checking out Stalker, and that's available on Criterion Channel. I have right a question now. for you and Chris, since both of you have seen this. <laughs> if I have a really hard time with Tarkovsky, I say as somebody who loves my slow foreign language films, but has struggled with Solaris and Andre Rublev, would Stalker be more my cup of tea? I have not seen those other ones. Chris, have you? Maybe you can answer that better. I have seen those other ones. This is probably, I, I don't want to say his best movie, but man, I don't even want to say most accessible because nothing he makes is accessible. <laughs> but if if you could use that term, I would say this would be the most accessible because there's at least like something going on. And not to say there's nothing going on in those other movies because there is, but there's more of a, 
a structure, I guess is the best way I could put it. So mm-hmm. yes, you might like it. Hmm. Okay, so uh, let's move on to HT. HT, what have you been watching? I watched Where Do You Go, Bernadette, which is the new Richard Linklater film. I reviewed the film for SlashFilm.com, so you can check out the, web, the review on our website. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's not great. It's not terrible either, but it is definitely not really a Richard Linklater film, at least in the sense of a lot of his filmography. Um, this is a film that's directed and co-written by Linklater and stars Kate Blanchett as an agoraphobic architect and mother who mysteriously goes missing uh, halfway through the film and her daughter and husband uh, scramble to find her. Uh, but unlike the novel by Maria Semple, which was a New York Times bestseller and a beloved sort of beach read book, it's not really about the mystery so much because we do see a lot of just Kate Blanchett and we get to know her character more so than any of the characters in this movie. And it becomes more about creators and creating, which is kind of interesting. There are some interesting threads that, that are picked up in this movie about like the drive to create and everything, but the movie kind of ends up wrapping itself up in the the neat uh, manner that the book does, and it kind of loses that thread and that coherence. Uh, the only the only really standout thing about this movie is probably Kate Blanchett's really zippy performance. She is just kind of takes over this movie in a way that to the that um, you know takes away from the rest of the cast who aren't really characters as much as she is. And uh, she's she's doing just like she's having a great time, just like ranting and rambling the entire time. And uh, she's always fun to watch. But this movie, I didn't really know what to make of it because I was prepared for it to be more along the lines of Linklater's, maybe more mainstream efforts like School of Rock, which is a movie I really enjoyed. But it feels like it's missing some of the warmth from that movie and instead uh, kind of clashes with his whole sort of naturalistic, humanistic um, style in a way that uh, makes it kind of a mess. Okay, what else have you been watching, HT? Um, another movie that I saw and reviewed for the site uh, and that it's much better is called Bunuel in the Labyrinth of the Turtles. It's a Spanish-language animated film uh, directed by Salvador Simo Busam about Luis Bunuel, who is the um, famous surrealist uh, Spanish director who directed some of the um, more renowned documentaries of the time. Anchia Andalou might be one that you have heard of. It's the one where the woman's eye gets cut in the um, in the film, but it's actually not the woman; it's a cow's eye. But I remember watching that in in, in class, and it was it's very it's very gruesome. But uh, Buell, Buell and the Labyrinth of the Turtles is kind of a biopic. It's about uh, Louis Buell uh, in the aftermath of um, filming his really controversial film *L'Age d'Or*, which got him essentially banned from directing in France. And he goes on to direct a movie called. Um, Las Erdes. I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, but it's a documentary about the this impoverished area in Spain, and um, he the film ends up being sort of this uh, deconstruction of the exploitative document ethnographic 
documentaries at the time. Um, and um, the but the the film Boonwell and the Labyrinth of the Turtles itself is kind of this more meandering, very simple story about him making this this film. It's both a love letter to filmmaking because you see all of the aspects of everything that goes wrong with filmmaking, all of the things that he goes through to get finance for it. But it's done in a way that um, really pays homage to that surrealist imagery that Bunuel is really famous for. It's really stark and really impenetrable in a way. Like you see at one point sort of the more realistic and grounded elements of him making the film. And then uh, the second later, you see these images of giant elephants with long spindly limbs walking through a city. So it's a beautiful film, which is um, in a way that it's, the animation is actually quite simple, but it's beautiful almost in its contrast because this, the character designs are incredibly simple. They're almost in the design in a way that um, uh, 80s Disney films look very similar to it. Um, and it's very plain colors, but they stand in stark contrast to the photorealistic and, and intricately designed backgrounds when really warm colors at those backgrounds take place. So it's a beautiful film and... Um, a nice testament to Louis Bunuel's uh, work. It doesn't quite, it, it's an interesting, it's more interesting as a character study and as a love letter to filmmaking. Um, and it's, it really is like a nice sort of reminder that animation for adults is really thriving outside of the U.S. and, uh, and can be done um, in a way that doesn't just cater to uh, the child demographic. So this is a film that is in select cinemas now. Um, it's being distributed by G Kids. And uh, if you have access to it, I recommend checking it out. And you're getting ready for the new Little Women, right? I am. So on the day that the Little Women trailer uh, dropped, and that's Little Women directed by Greta Gerwig, starring Saoirse Ronan, Timothy Chalamet, I was just so excited and over the moon for this new adaptation that I went back and watched the 1994 Little Women starring uh, Winona Ryder, Christian Bale, Claire Danes, Kirsten Dunst, um, and uh, Susan Sarandon. And I actually... Um, have only seen this version once. I was more of a reader of the book. It's probably like my most dog-eared copy uh, of, of in all my book collection. I've read it a lot since I was a kid. So I only saw the um, the film once, although I know a lot of people my age and women my age are really, really connected to this movie. So I wasn't sure how well it would hold up. And it really does hold up. It is a little schmaltzy. It, it plays very much like a Christmas period film and crowd pleaser. But the performances are great. Uh, Winona Ryder is just sparkling and so fun. Christian Bale is incredibly dreamy. And um, I really enjoyed actually see, seeing um, Susan Sarandon's character, Marmy, from a new um, perspective because I didn't realize how for lack of a better word, woke she was. This It's it's really fun to, to kind of revisit the story and see how progressive it really is, not just in the character of Jo, played by Winona Ryder, who has always been uh, quite a feminist figure and quite ahead of her time. She is sort of a stand-in for the author, Louisa May Alcott, who um, ended up unmarried and wanted to, you know, uh, bulk up, not bulk, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, uh, you know, a throwaway with societal expectations. And uh, she wanted Joe in the end to remain unmarried, but um, uh, all the characters are so rich and so well um, designed and so well um, characterized. And it's a nice reminder that uh, 
Little Women more than just being about Joe is uh, about this beautiful array of really different, really diverse female characters, all of whom you can relate to. So um, I, I really liked uh, watching it again, and um, I'm really looking forward even more so to Greta Gerwig's adaptation. Okay, and you've also been watching Succession? Yes, I have been hearing the hype about this HBO series for a long time, um, since last year when the first season came out. And I have finally been worn down by everyone on Twitter, all my friends who have been watching it and saying it's one of the best shows on TV right now. And uh, I watched the first episode. I can't, I'm not as far yet to say it's one of the best TV shows out there right now, but it's pretty darn good. Um, I've it took about halfway through the episode for me to sit up and say, wow, this is a really good show. It uh, stars Brian Cox as the patriarch of this uh, media conglomerate family, all filled with backstabbers and ambitious um, um, kids. And uh, it's uh, very basically King Lear is set in modern day, set like with boardroom b- politics and backstabbing. And um, also an obscenely wealthy version of Arrested Development. So just think Arrested Development meets Shakespeare and you've basically got it. And uh, I really enjoyed that. It's probably the best adaptation of King Lear I've seen since Akira Kurosawa's ran. And um, I really love seeing Brian Cox just ruthlessly tear all of his children down with his words. And it's it's really fun. It's really well written. Um, I'm excited to, to get uh, started on this show and like actually dive into the nitty gritty and see how the rest of it plays out. I'm surprised more people on this podcast are not watching this show or season two yet because I know everybody in my Twitter feed is talking about the show. No yeah, it's Jacob really great. Does. Yeah, I, I love this show, but I haven't, I'm a little behind. Uh, I'm going to start season two this week and binge a few episodes, get caught up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I saw Ready or Not, and I wrote a review for it on SlashFilm.com. Um, it's it was fun. It was it's nothing special. Um, if you've seen the trailer, you've seen a lot of the movie. I, I almost wish I actually hadn't watched the trailer beforehand because it, it, it sort of saps some of the fun out of it. But you know, it, it's about um, uh, this young woman. She marries into this very wealthy family, and on her wedding night, they have a tradition where anyone who marries into the family has to play a game, and the game she has to play is hide and seek. But this is all a pretext because the family uh, wants to murder her to sacrifice her to uh, <laughs> basically keep their wealth. Um, the idea is like they have to kill someone in order to to stay wealthy and opulent and uh powerful and uh so the whole movie is basically like all in one night where she's running around the house trying to get away from this family who's trying to kill her and it's it's dark it's funny it's very violent um it's a it's a pretty enjoyable film um it's nothing great it's not like you know a classic but uh i think anyone who sees it will be entertained by it Let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, it seems like you've been the only person that was consuming interesting things this week. What what, what did you eat? Uh, nothing super fancy, but Taco Bell debuted a new freeze flavor called Cherry Sunset Freeze. Uh, it's a pineapple slush with some uh, cherry um, accent in it, I guess you could say. 
And honestly, this is probably one of the best flavors of freezes that I have ever had. It has the this like perfect tropical taste to it from the pineapple and the cherry is like has just enough in it to change it up so that it's not just a straight pineapple slush. Uh, it's extremely refreshing, especially at, right now as summer is winding down. And I just I, I liked it a lot. It's I, I've um, as, like just from the first like the first sip, I was like, man, this is incredible. So if uh, it's at all Taco Bell's right now. So if you are looking for a nice, uh, you know, thing to close out your summer with a, a good icy, uh, try it out. OK, cool. Um, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing this week? I've been playing a lot of board game called The Quest for El Dorado. It is a game by Reiner Knizia, uh, the prolific German designer who designed over 600 board games in his career, uh, which means that he's had a lot of duds, but when he connects, he really connects. And The Quest for El Dorado is an attractive game because it's cheap. It's only 35 bucks, and it is simple to learn. It has a, like an eight-page rule book with very large text. It's the kind of game you can bring home to your family, kind of game you can play with you know, people of all experiences and backgrounds with gaming. Because, like the best Reiner Knizia games, it uses an extremely simple structure to let you make all kinds of complex choices. And the basic gist of the gameplay is you build out a map. You can either design your own or use one of the custom ones in the game using various hex pieces that depict jungles and deserts and water and forests and so on. And you then have to move your expedition through the wilderness to find the city of El Dorado. And you do this by drawing cards from a deck and different cards uh, create different types of movement. And you can spend money to buy new cards to add to your deck. It's a deck-building game. So the idea being that you want to look at this path ahead of you, look at your deck of cards, and realize, okay, what kind of cards do I need to include? What kind of cards do I need to discard to try to maximize the efficiency of traveling through the jungle? And so there's a lot of games have used similar uh, techniques where they have to use the card, you know, uh, card-building, deck-building mechanics to create motion on a board. But El Dorado really streamlines it in a way that is you can teach it in less than five minutes, but then you're making really, really tough choices trying to figure out which order do I play my cards, what card do I discard here, what cards do I buy to increase my chances of movement in these areas. And I've only played with two players so far, but me and my, me and my wife, but after about five games of it in two days, we immediately ordered the expansion and have played with that since, which adds more cards and more territory. And I recommend it quite highly. It is an extremely fun, very simple game that I'm finding rewarding as someone who plays a lot of board games, a lot more complicated board games. So it, it is really scratching a lot of itches for me right now. Very cool. Ben, what have you been playing? Uh, I have an experience that's not nearly as enjoyable as that. I've been playing a game called <laughs> Erica, which is available right now for $10 on the PlayStation Store. I played this on the PS4, and it's a murder mystery game that is uh, that uses live action footage so it's essentially like uh like bandersnatch it's like a choose your own path oh it's like those old thing. like sega cd games yeah yeah um and and on the touchpad on the playstation controller which is what i used you can also download an app and use this on your phone but you basically just use the touchpad to select different parts of the screen to like uh you know answer questions um if you're in a conversation with somebody you know it's like the whole branching narrative thing uh you can also like physically manipulate uh, items in the world like if there's you know somebody will hand you a lighter and the camera will sort of go to the lighter and you'll be able to like flick the the zippo lid off and then like actually flick the the wheel to start the fire you know that kind of thing um so it's it's interactive in that way and i was excited about the concept of this 
because I found Bandersnatch to be interesting and like almost a video game in itself. And I was like, oh, they're just taking this back to, like you said, Peter, those old school, actual like uh, Sega CD video games. And so I think uh, I-, I was excited going into it, but I have to say this, this game is like incredibly tedious. I played it for... I think like an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 45 minutes or something. And the story, which is about this young girl named Erica, whose father is murdered by some sort of cult or something. And she gets uh, basically placed in a uh, uh, psychological facility by the police as like a witness protection kind of thing, just to keep her safe. And then she interacts with all these uh, people who are are living at this facility and and tries to figure out the mystery of what happened to her father. Um, the story is just so plotting and it just takes forever for anything to happen. And all of the interactive elements are just, they don't seem, um, like there's the pacing on this thing is just so glacial. It's like, you know, some, the, uh, the most exciting thing you get to do with the touchpad is to, I don't know, pull a piece of paper closer to you or like open a, uh, a glove box in somebody's car. And it's, it's not like you're actually doing anything super fun or interesting. And I was like, all right, I'm going to play this for long enough to give it a fair shake. And I feel like an hour and 45 minutes straight of like going straight through the story and, and, you know, that should be enough for this thing to hook me. And it just did not. So I just gave up on it. So that is, that's called, uh, it's called Erica and it's available on the PlayStation Store if you have more patience than I do. Jacob, you sound like the type of person that has played games like this in the past. I have not played Erica, but it did, it did sound like a weaker version of a game called Her Story. Have you uh, played that one, Ben? I, I've heard of that one. And that was more like a YouTube thing, right? Uh, no, it was, it was, it's a game where the entire game is a collection of video clips that you're looking at in some kind of police storage database, and it's all live-action footage of a woman being interrogated, and you can search for phrases and search for words, and it'll, the database will pull up uh, whatever, you know, video clips contain that name or that word, but there's no direction, and there's no overall story. You just have to watch these video clips in any order you choose, writing down on pen and paper, the things that stand out to you and solve whatever mystery has been put in front of you, even though you don't know what the mystery to solve is yet. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like Eric is trying to gamify that in a way that doesn't quite work. Yeah. I just looked it up as you were talking about it and it is the game that I was thinking of. And I have not played this, but I've heard such good things about it that I was hoping that Erica would be, you know, like a newer sleeker version or something. And it just, um, yeah, the pacing on this thing just, uh, it ground me to a halt. So I can't say that I would recommend it, but I'll recommend instead, uh, for you, for you, Ben and for everybody else, a game called until dawn came out a few years ago. And it is a horror movie simulator where you control a cast of seven or eight teens on their way to a cabin in the woods, and you have very limited control. Like you, like you don't like shoot anything. You don't not any action scenes, uh, but you get you make dialogue choices. You decide which direction they go, if they run or they fight, and it essentially unfolds into a horror movie where you decide the tone, and you are often responsible for who lives and who dies. And it's actually co-written by Larry Fessenden, the acclaimed indie horror filmmaker. So it hmm. goes to some pretty wild places, and it's. Really cheap now, because I think it came out in 2015, 2016. So you can probably find it for 20 bucks and get a good eight hours out of it. Nice. Okay. Uh, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. 
Yes, Jacob. I mean, I, I have the name in the book here. I have the author. But even if I read this correctly, I know that you're just going to go ahead and just just do it. So, so just do it. Oh, I want you to give it a little college try. That's just your point. No, no, I, I give up. I, I, I relent. You, right, have, uh, you have won. I, this means you have to sign over slash com to me, right? That, that was the deal? <laughs> that was not the deal. <laughs> All right. Well, I have opened up the Gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, reposts, caustic quips, and impolite put-downs by Louis A. Safian to the pessimists section. I think we're all feeling a little pessimist, pessimistic these days. So let's start with Chris. His usual greeting is, good morning, probably. <laughs> actually kind of accurate. Huh? I was going to say, I can actually hear him say that in my head. Yeah. Uh, uh, Brad, he never builds castles in the air for the fear they'll have mortgages on them. Well, okay. Uh... Uh, HT, she wears not only a belt, but suspenders as well. Hey, I, I don't get it. HT, she wears not only a belt, <laughs> but suspenders as well. Jacob, I think you misunderstand. When somebody says they don't get it, it doesn't mean you can hear it. <laughs> All right, you see, HT, the joke is that you're so pessimistic your pants are going to fall down as you oh. double up. Oh, I see. So we'll just try this one more time. Okay. HT, she wears not only a belt, but suspenders as well. Ah. Uh, ben, he fills up every time he sees a gas station. <laughs> yep, real worried about running out of gas over here. Uh, and, and Peter, first thing he looks for upon entering a department store is the complaint and exchange counters. Uh, what? <laughs> first thing you look for upon entering a department store is the complaint and exchange counters. Because I know I'm going to complain about something? The first thing you look for upon entering a department <laughs> store is the complaint and exchange counters. <laughs> <laughs> 